0: Thank you, Father Aaron. So I need to skip the niceties this morning, and I need to share with you a shocking revelation. Father Aaron can be a very
1: unreasonable man. Or so it seemed.
0: So he asked me to come and preach, and he does not say, well, you know, I know you've been preaching for 30 years, so you have a thousand sermons in your bucket. Just pick one of those and and just come and preach it. It's like, here's the text. And then here's the theme you're supposed to talk about in the text, okay? So, which normally is okay, but justice is not mentioned in this text at all. So I felt sort of like, I, dude, Father Aaron, it's like, I, I don't have a hard time getting through this without laughing, but it's like, it's like a reality TV show where you got this chef and it's like, hey, here's five ingredients, make an omelet, but there's no eggs. Well, too bad. Hopefully you can find some. So that's the way I felt. So Father Aaron believes in me. So he has a lot of confidence in me. So he's like, you can find it. And I actually didn't have to work that hard. So I started, I read through 1 Peter, the whole book. I read through it again. I read through this passage. It's like, okay, so the word justice is not mentioned, but the theme is really there. And it's in this text. Peter doesn't use the word justice, but he uses the word good. And he says about 18 times in this little epistle, he uses the word good and the phrase, doing good, do good, do good. And let the world see your good deeds, church. And that's the theme. And so, what I want to talk about this morning is a slow, steadfast goodness that produces a more just world. It really does. That's what Peter is calling us to. That's what the Lord Jesus is calling us to. And it's really important in this passage and in this whole book to get the historical context, because that makes all the difference in how we see this book and this passage. So just a few snippets. So Peter was, Apostle Peter, writing from Rome in about maybe 65 AD, around there. And most historians estimate that there were about 10,000 followers of Jesus in the entire Roman Empire. That's a big place with a lot of people. So that is 0.01% of the population. So a minority, but a maligned minority, a mocked minority, a mistrusted minority. They have no political clout, no privilege or power they have um no money they don't own any buildings and the key virtues that we are called to as followers of jesus things like kindness and servanthood and humility things that we all would say oh those are good things Uh, the elite of the roman empire thought those were stupid things really stupid and and just dumb and and just and just defective and immature and childish humility is not a virtue well, whatever, Where does that get you and yet in the midst of this Peter begins his epistle with a radically new vision of human flourishing that is rooted and flows out of the resurrection of Jesus and so in an earlier sermon you probably heard this verse Chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this living hope ignites, sets forth like a like a a roaring stream, a commitment to a new vision of human flourishing. So the question is: how is the church? This, this little church of exiles scattered throughout the Roman Empire, meeting in people's homes and maybe meeting underground in certain times and certain places. How are they going to bring this vision of human flourishing? How are they going to bring light into a world of darkness, peace into a world of brutality, um, truth into a world of corruption? Goodness, good news for the poor, where 95% of the population is not, not rich, probably poor. There is no middle class. The elite 5% are the wealthy. But so how are they going to bring that good news? And, and Peter says in this epistle, it's embodied in a community of people, in a community of followers of Jesus, in the church that pursues this slow, steadfast goodness that leads to a more just world. Now, I want to talk about three features of this slow, steadfast goodness that leads to a more just world in this text. So the first one is what we might call three features or facets or realms. The first one is personal, personal goodness. The second one is public goodness. And the third is vulnerable goodness. So Peter probably didn't mean it this way. This is probably not the way. I just, I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know his mind, but But there is, to me, there's a progression to these three things as they get increasingly kind of us more and more involved and deeper into a suffering, unjust world. It starts with the personal, slow, steadfast goodness. And and I want us to begin by focusing on, on one word and one verse, verse 11. It says, Beloved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles. And by the way, there's, there's urging in this. And then in chapter three, Peter says we should be zealous for good deeds. So although I say it's slow and steadfast, I don't mean it's, it's, it's indifferent, or I don't mean it's lackadaisical. It's, it's intense and it's, it's zealous. So, but it takes time. It's not a quick fix. So verse 11, continuing verse 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, I want to focus on that word passion because it's kind of a catch-all word that Peter uses eight times in his epistles, first and second Peter, for, for sin. And, and the word passion in the original language could mean something good. It could mean like, like we say, oh, I'm really passionate about soccer or I'm really passionate about French cooking. Or, so, so it could be a good thing where like Jesus says in, in the Gospel of Luke, he says, I, I earnestly desire to eat this pass, Passover meal with you. So that's a good thing, but all eight times that Peter uses it, it's a bad thing. It's bad desire. So desire could be good or it could be bad. Peter uses it here at eight times to, to talk about disordered desire, Desor- desire that is deformed, that's damaged, that's, that's going in the wrong direction. It's become, it's become defective dis- desire. And so in, in chapter one, verse 14, he says, um, "He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's that word, disordered desire. So, do away with those passions. See, here's the thing with sin. At least according to this epistle, and at least according to this passage, it's not just wrong things we do, although it is that, and it's not just wrong things we think, although it is that. It's." Wrong things we desire or desiring good things in the wrong way. I mean, there's a long tradition of this in Christian spirituality is that desires can get deformed and disordered, and then we desire the wrong things. And that's really obvious, you know, like you desire things that are bad for you, like too much alcohol or, or too much lustful thinking or too much of this, too much of that. But then there's also good things that we desire in the wrong way. So for instance, you desire intimacy. That's a really good desire. You should desire intimacy. But then we desire it so much that we will break, sexual, break through sexual barriers or break, break through relational barriers or do things to ourselves that are harmful or harmful to others in order to get intimacy. Or we desire health, which is a good thing. We desire to stay alive. You know, that's a good thing. God gives the gift of health. But we desire it so much that we're, we totally freak out over and we get so nervous and we get so anxious about disease or, or, or dying, dying becomes the worst thing that can happen to you. And as a Christian, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. It's a bad thing, but it's not the worst thing that can happen to you or you desire security. And so you try so hard to find it in money or success, or you desire to be noticed, to be seen, to be loved. And then we try so hard, it gets disordered. And so we constantly worry about crafting our image and crafting our, do people like me and do people notice me and do people see me and do people value me? So we see how desires can get disordered. Now, Peter is insisting that this is a matter of life or death, spiritually speaking. It wages war against your soul. You're in a war for against disordered desires, he says. So you ask, so what does this have to do with a just world? isn't this just like private piety? Does that really have to do with justice? Well, yes, it does. It's crucial because you're never just, we are never just working for justice. We are never just like advocating for the poor. We are always in every situation and every work that we do, we are bringing our full selves into that situation. So if we're filled with disordered desires, we're bringing our disordered desires into that situation and we're spewing them around everyone we meet. And it does great harm, even when we're trying to do great good. So let me give you a positive example. So in the late 1700s, there was a Russian saint, probably the most famous Russian saint in the Orthodox church, or at least one of them, Seraphim of Sarov. He's kind of the St. Francis of Assisi of Russian, Russian spiritual, Christian spirituality. So he spent years, decades living in the forest just allowing the lord jesus to work on his disordered desires now you might think well that's kind of a waste of time but eventually he reemerged from the forest and he had this incredibly powerful ministry of compassion of prayer of healing of preaching of counseling of spiritual di- direction he became a spiritual father to thousands of people and he's revered uh, as as a russian saint he greeted everyone everyone he met he would say My joy, like that. He just had, uh, this text talks about honoring everyone. He honored everyone just by calling them my joy. And then when the conversation ended, he would say, Christ is risen. So that's the way he lived his life. So he had this, this little sentence, this saying that has just stuck with me and changed my life. He said, acquire a peaceful spirit and thousands around you will be saved. What your, your inner life speaks. You say it's private. No, it's not. It's never private. Your inner life speaks. And so the flip side is that is if you don't acquire a peaceful spirit, if you have all these disordered desires within us, we can
1: hurt and wound people around us even while we're trying to do good. Let me just say this, be really blunt.
0: I don't trust anyone anymore, including myself, as that used to be me, and maybe it still is on a given day. I don't trust anyone who says they care about justice, but they don't care about their disordered passions.
1: If you want justice, here's step number one. Work on yourself. Or let the Lord Jesus work on you. As I need to let the Lord Jesus work on me. Verse
0: 24, it says this, that Jesus, one of the things he does is he deals with our sins. He deals with our disordered passions. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. How beautiful is that? All the disorder, all the woundedness, he bore it, carried it, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, emerge, live in the power of the resurrection by his wounds who have been seal, healed. So this morning, you know, as we come to the, the table of the Eucharist, we receive the bread and the wine, we are celebrating that Jesus bore our sins. He knew and he bore all the disordered desires that we carried in today. He knew it and he bears them. And he heals our wounds. So it starts there. It starts with this personal, slow, steadfast goodness that leads to a more just world. But then it, it's very public as well. It quickly turns public in verse 13. And there's, there's actually two little case studies that Peter gives right here. And they're, they're kind of compact and they're sort of nuanced and interesting. And I probably shouldn't cover both of them when I'm, I'm going to try to anyway. So the first one is, is the case study is, is how to deal with government. And the second one is how the ancient church dealt with slavery. So let's look at government in verse 13. So Peter says this, he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. So institutions are, somebody has defined them as organic structures ordered for the common good An organic structure. So they just, they develop, but they're also God given that are ordered for the common good. So. It could be federal government, state government, city government, could be things that they promote, such as laws and rules and law enforcement and all that kind of thing. So they're ordered for the common good. And Peter says, be subject or come underneath. Now, my first thought is that doesn't seem very justicey. That seems sort of like you prop up the status quo. That's your job as a Christian. You, you don't rock the boat. Well, that's actually not what he's saying here. It's it's a really careful argument. If you read the whole book, and as I read the whole book, I just like, my, you know, light bulbs are going off. It's like, wow, this is really different than I thought. I'm learning all kinds of new things as I study for this sermon. So thank you, Father Aaron. So notice he does not say, he does not say
1: fear the government or worship the government. Peter
0: says fear God, but don't fear the government. He says, submit for the Lord's sake. And in verse 15, he says, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God that you do this. And why? Well, there's a clue in verse 15 or verse 14, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the role of the government is to promote actually what God promotes, which is to do actually kind of a facet of God's sovereign work in the world, which is to punish wrongdoing and praise what is good. That's a role that God does. Now, every human institution, every human government will do it imperfectly and and flawed. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But I think what Peter is saying, look, you've been placed in a particular city in a particular place with particular leaders over you as much as possible. Come under them and honor them. So here's what I'm going to say something really good about Father Aaron. So I have definite, some really strong opinions about Chicago politics. I don't live in Chicago. I've never lived in Chicago. I live in Aurora. So I was trying to like, like bait Father Aaron to like say something negative. And he like, he never took the bait. He's like, he never took the bait. He's just like, oh yeah, yeah. Well, well, you know, you got to look at it this way and you know, and we got some people you know, and so. And it was like, he was like really honorable, you know? And I wasn't trying to trap you, by the way. I was just, I was just complaining, you know, but, but I, that was really a good model of honoring your civic leaders. But notice, notice what I, again, this is a God word. God is above the emperor. So in verse 17, it says, fear God, honor the emperor. And then throughout Peter, there's these little snippets where it talks about how God is Jesus is not only our savior, but he's our judge. And he's going to judge every human ruler. So every human authority, every institution, every corrupt judge, every lying politician, every ruthless business leader, every abusive spiritual leader stands and will be judged by almighty God. And so that relativizes, that like shrinks the gravitas of every human institution and every leader it doesn't negate their role and our role to honor them but it it brings balance so as a christian we can say i can respect and critique at the same time i can honor and i can lovingly fight against certain policies at the same time so whether it's the mayor, president, law enforcement, I can respect and honor, but at the same time, I can critique and ask them to be held accountable. It's both things. So a Christian, every time we come into the institutions, we come in with this both, I'm going to honor every person. But that doesn't mean they're always right. And that doesn't mean that they are in danger of being judged by Almighty God. And so I need to hold those two things in tension. So that's the first case study. The second case study on, on the surface seems a lot trickier. And that's the whole thing with the new Testament on slavery. Um, actually, I, I don't, I don't know about you, but I actually don't find it that tricky. Um, especially if you understand the con if once I understood the context, so it says in verse 18 servants. Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing, it says. Now that in our context, that seems really outrageous. And and I can understand that it seems to be, again, propping up something that's unjust. Why does the Bible seem to endorse it? Well, okay, here's some a couple of contextual things that maybe you're well aware of, but they they really helped me. So Scholars estimate that a third to 40% of the population of the Roman Empire were, were slaves. And the slaves were not, they're, they're not exactly like employees, and they're not exactly like, like slavery that we experience in our country. It's kind of a different category of, of human malfunction, of human brokenness. So it wasn't reserved to one racial or ethnic group. I mean the romans conquered a lot of people and they put a lot of them into slavery it was for slaves could own property slaves in the roman empire could hold important positions sometimes it was a, it was a way to advance economically but it, it could still be really degrading and it could still it was not god's original intent for human beings so remember the church is not in a position of political power they're not going to go to the emperor nero who was a very cruel and violent man, who called Christians haters of humanity, who at one time wrapped a few Christians in animal skins and lit them on fire because he wanted to scapegoat them for being the enemies of the empire. So they're not going to go to him and and picket and present a, a petition for the abolishment of slavery. But here's what they did, which I think was even more radical. It was slower but it's ultimately more effective. So if you have your Bibles, otherwise I'll just read it to you. Look at chapter four, verses nine and 10. And it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's buried grace. What's so radical about that? It's making no distinction between slave and free. It's making no distinction between people of different economic classes. It's saying, you show hospitality to everyone. Honor everyone, Peter says in chapter 2. Honor everyone. Do you know how revolutionary that is in the history of the world? Even in the world today, for people to live that way? And you can actually track this, this kind of like revolutionary, underpinnings that would undermine slavery. You can track it. So in first Timothy, Paul condemns slave traders. The book of revelation condemns slave traders. 300 years later, Gregory, the great denounces slavery. St. Patrick denounced slavery in the 400s. It began dissolving laws were enacted against the enslavement of brothers and sisters in the early 1800s, the abolition movement in England, which was led by evangelical Christians, not leaders of the enlightenment, but evangelical Christians. In 1848, you have Frederick Douglass, a godly Christian man, writing to his former master, Thomas Auld, who also claimed to be a Christian, but was a cruel man, writing, Douglass said, the grim horrors of slavery rise in all their ghastly terror before me. It is an outrage on the soul and one for which you must give account at the bar of our common Father and Creator. What a powerful statement. I believe that's all rooted in 1 Peter and in the New Testament. That's the power of slow, steadfast goodness that creates a more just world. And because of the power of the resurrection, God's goodness says to evil, I will outlast you. I will wear you down. And I will own you. Not because of some inevitable progress of the human race, but because of the power of the resurrection. So it's personal, it's public, and it's also vulnerable. And look with me at verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps if you really want to pursue slow, stat-fest goodness that leads to a more just world, you will pay a price. It will cost you. It will open
1: you to suffering.
0: It will make you vulnerable. Now, sometimes we need to make ourselves safe, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not against that at all. And sometimes we need to have boundaries and all that, and so that's all really healthy. But it makes you vulnerable to suffering. I mean, look at anybody who's fought any injustice throughout history, and you will see that they paid a price for it. reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln and the price he paid to try to hold the union together and yet at the same time try to abolish slavery. My goodness, that man suffered and paid a price for it. So you can have an easier life, you can have a less risky life, or you can follow in Jesus' footsteps and open your heart to suffering people and open your heart to the things that break the heart of God. Let me give you an example. So I have two families at Rez who have been doing Bible translation work to um, different tribal groups in Africa, different parts of Africa, one in the Central African Republic and one in Ethiopia. And, you know, at, at first I thought, well, Bible translation, that's not really it. Justice issue is it? Oh yes, it is. It's a profound justice issue. So you're part of a a tribal group of people, maybe two hundred fifty thousand people. Nobody values your language. People don't care if your language just disappears. But that's your culture. That's your mother tongue. So you're told your language doesn't matter. You don't matter. You're you don't count. You're not important. You're not significant. You know, you're not a big language like English. You know, you speak English, you matter, you're important. You speak your language, that doesn't matter. And you get the word of God in your mother tongue. Do you know what that does to you as a people group? It's like, we matter. We're important. And we were part of this process. We did this. People said we were stupid. People said our language could just die. But now we have the word of God in our language. That is justice that creates a more just world. But my point is, is that these two families just listening to their stories where they worked for 10 to 20 years to get to the Bible, they have the Bible in these, in the, the laying the heart language of these people in, in the midst of teams forming and teams splitting up and wars and violence and evacuations and health issues. And finally the new Testament and then finally the Psalms and then finally the Bible. They
1: paid a price for that. They're glad they did it, but they paid a price. So I hope that the Lord still stirs
0: my heart as long as I have health, and I can't do it apart from the grace of God, and you can't either. So the question is, how do we keep in this fight? You know, maybe you care about some things that are really close to your heart and we have different things that we're passionate about in a good way. We have different good passions for how we want to see God and his church make the world more just, more secure for justice. And so we would all have different things. I bet there's something on your heart that the Lord is stirring. And I just pray, may the Lord continue to stir it. But how
1: are you going to keep it going? Well, here's the thing to remember.
0: That stirring was not your idea. It didn't just come from you, and it didn't just come from me. You didn't sign up for it. You didn't qualify it. You don't have it because you're morally superior or you're part of some elite group. You have it because you were called, because Jesus called
1: you. And maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I want to be called, but you've been
0: called. So chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says, that Jesus is the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. He
1: called you. He called you and he stirred you. You know, nobody says, I think I'll take up Christianity. I think I'll just feel more like Jesus. I didn't do that.
0: Jesus took me up. Jesus took you up. Maybe that was pleasant or maybe it disrupted you to the core, but he called you and your life is not the same. And now your whole life is, as Father Aaron will say in the Eucharistic prayer, by him and with him and in him. And you're not living it alone. And he's walking beside you. He's like, you're walking in his footsteps and he's one step ahead of you. He's not just way out there. He's just right with you, walking with you. Stirring you, guiding you, listening to your prayers. I love the way this little portion um, ends in verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in your quest for slow, steadfast goodness, that leads to a more just world, no matter how God is stirring you or how he has stirred you, no matter how he will stir you, you are walking with the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And it's by him and with him and in him that you can continue in that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the
1: Holy Spirit. Amen.